Acts 19, verse 21. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines to Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth, and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned many a great people away, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. And most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis, and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky. Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. You guys can be seated both here at St. Mary's and at home. As I was thinking about service this week and about this passage particularly, um, 
I was in the woods and I was listening to This American Life with Ira Glass. I don't know how many of you listen to that regularly, but if you do, you can almost hear his voice when I say, Act One. Hey, Dad, Dad. And if you listen to This American Life posted on March 22nd, he gives a story about a father and a daughter and they are at home and the father's trying to work and the daughter comes to him with question after question and he says that they are questions that are deep. And finally, he tells his daughter, I don't have time, go and write them down and bring them back to me. And the next day, the daughter brings back three single-spaced pages of some of the most incomprehensible questions of the world. What is the meaning of life? Who do you miss the most and why? Do you ever stop missing them? What is time and why? (laughs) And he remembers that he stopped and began to ask his daughter, or began to respond to his daughter. And he actually attempted to answer every question. And the interviewer asked the little girl, is this what you wanted? And she said, no. I actually asked my dad harder questions because I just wanted time with him. I wanted to be with him in conversation with him. I would encourage you guys to go and listen to that as we all adjust to being at home more and more. But it also struck me that the God who gives us this scripture is a God like none other who asks us questions. And even though there are no questions in this passage, brings us to this, asking us the questions of Scripture. Where are you? Why are you here? Where have you come from and where are you going? The whole point of coming to God's Word is to engage with Him in conversation. And our part is to do so in prayer. Will you come and pray with me now? Let's pray together. Father, we come to you with your word in front of us. And in many ways, many of us feel like this new normal has shaken us so much that we feel like we've wasted time and we're not even sure how to make the most of every day. Father, we seem to be missing those who are in front of us. And Father, in many ways, our fear and our anxiety and our attempts to dissuade them even cause us to miss you. Father, I praise you that you pursue us, not only in the rhythms of this week, where you have set aside one in seven for us to worship you, but I thank you that you pursue us through your word. Father, I ask now that you would quiet our hearts and that you would allow us to hear you through your word. Ask us questions. Draw us out and show us the glory of Christ. 
Father, I pray for the women and the men who are watching this service. Father, the anxiety in our lives is so great that some of us are having chest pains. Some of us aren't sleeping. Father, some of us are having panic attacks. Father, and it's not just anxiety. Some of us are sick. Some of us have already been sick with the virus, and some of us are getting sicker. Father, we come before you, and we ask that you would be with us. Father, we pray on behalf of the women and the men whom you have called to be in positions of care, both in the medical field and in the labs, the scientists as they study, those who are in the service industry and are in people's homes caring for them. Father, would you be with them? Today, would you quiet their hearts and remind them that you hear them when they pray and that you know. Father, as we come before you, we ask you, would you give us attentiveness to your word? And would you show us how even through this passage, you are pursuing us? Father, I pray particularly for the families who are at home and the children who have a hard time paying attention. Father, I pray that you would quiet their hearts and that you would give them a peace that passes understanding, even in the midst of unsettledness. Father, I thank you that you've promised to meet us, and so we expect nothing less than that today, that you would meet us by your word. Father, I thank you that you desire to hear from us. And I pray that even during this time, you would draw worship from your people. Father, be with those who are grieving. Be with those who are losing loved ones. Father, be with those who have cast their cares upon you and convince them that you care for them. Father, thank you for this time. Be with us now, we pray. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, I don't know if you were like me, but maybe you heard this passage and you thought, how in the world is this gonna apply to where our lives are today? I was with one of you this week, and you said more or less this, no matter what the idols are in our lives, these days, these past few weeks, have begun to expose all of our idols. And isn't that the truth? We have had the idols of control exposed. Our idols of wealth and of health are being exposed. As we are isolated, our idols of others' praise, um, our idols of just wanting to escape distraction, um, our idols of saying, no, this is our freedom. Our idol of happiness is being challenged and being pursued. 
And the question is, will we stop and consider these days and consider what we mean when we say our idols are being exposed? Do you take idolatry seriously? Right now, as Louisa and Mita, who are sitting here, know my favorite show on television is American Idol. (laughs) I use the language so loosely, right? And uh, I will go and watch it tonight with enthusiasm. But idols, we're told in Scripture, cause human beings to lose their humanity. And today's passage explains to us how Jesus exposes our idols. There are only two things that we have in this passage today that I want us to look at. One is the mechanics of idolatry. How does idolatry work? What does idolatry produce? Why does idolatry work until it doesn't? The second thing that we're going to talk about today is the mechanics of Christianity, the mechanics of faith in Christ. How does Christianity work? Why does What does Christianity produce? Why does it work? That's really what's going on in this passage as we look at it today. And so I first want to turn your attention again to these verses. And I want you to look at how Luke explains the mechanics of idolatry, even in the context where he demonstrates that it is the ministry of Christ that exposes idolatry. The idolatry here in Ephesus is exposed by Paul's ministry. The first thing that I want you to look at is verses 23 through 27. How does idolatry work? And I want you to see it in Demetrius' speech. It says that about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. Now again, about that time references what just came before. The Apostle Paul had sent out Timothy and Erastus. He had sent them across the water from Ephesus to Macedonia where he is about to go and he is about to proclaim the gospel again. He's also going back to Macedonia and Achaia to collect the tithes and the offerings to take back to Jerusalem, which is what those verses tell us and what we learn in Corinthians and to give to the Christians in Jerusalem money and support. But then he intends to go on to Rome, the place where he will next proclaim the gospel of Jesus. And so it says that about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. And as you begin to understand this passage, Demetrius is talking about the movement of Jesus and people who come to follow him. No one really knows where that language the way came from it might have been Jesus saying I am the way the truth and the life and no one comes to the father but by me it might have come from the old testament when when God calls his people to follow him and to follow the way that he sets forward but at any rate what we see is that during these times there was no little disturbance a great disturbance was happening And from this, we understand how idolatry works. Look at it with me, if you will. This is Demetrius' speech. Listen to what he says. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines to Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. 
And he called them together and in verse 25 says, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is a danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and she may be even deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. This is what we learn about how idolatry works. First, we see that humans embed idolatry into our very culture and into our economics. Demetrius says, look, this proclamation that Paul is making of this God who became man, this is threatening our very economy and our wealth. The second way that idolatry works is that it is highlighted when it is threatened. That's what he says in verse 26. The reason I've called you together is because Paul has been proclaiming that God's made with human hands aren't God's at all. And we are the ones who are about to hurt is what Demetrius says. And the third thing that he says is he instills fear in verse 27. He says, look, we're in danger. And look at the things that he talks about being in danger of. The loss of respect and of standing within the community. The loss of the corporate identity of the city of Ephesus, the city that was the temple keepers of the great temple of Artemis. And the third thing that he says is he says that we're even in danger that the great goddess Artemis might lose her own magnificence and majesty. You see, the way that idolatry works is that it embeds itself in our economy. It's highlighted when it's threatened. It instills fear. It depends on human sacrifice. It enslaves human beings, as Demetrius is saying, by humans who are made to provide for gods in the same way that we often laugh about Dunkin' Donuts. Hey, America runs on Dunkin'. Idolatry runs on fear. That's how idolatry works. The second thing that we learn in verses 28 through 34 is what does idolatry produce? What does it produce? Look at verses 28 and following. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. What does idolatry produce? Idolatry produces in this city a very easy answer. It produces fear, doesn't it? Idolatry becomes a perpetual motion machine elicited by our fear and producing in us even more fear. Where do we see that in this passage? The very first place we see it is that the city was described as being enraged. It's fear plus anger. And that word actually encourages us to understand being filled to overflowing with rage. In the South, we might say, they were running around like chickens with their heads cut off. They were enraged. The only other place that Luke uses this is in Luke 4 when Jesus starts his own ministry and he preaches in the synagogue and the synagogue rulers reject him when he says, you are not going to believe. And it says that they are enraged and they move to throw Jesus over a cliff. Go back and read it, Luke 4, fascinating. 
But it's not just rage that happens in the city, what is produced by idolatry, but also it's confusion. We see confusion referenced twice in our literature today. We see that there was great unrest. There was such confusion that some people were shouting one thing and other people were shouting another thing. The confusion that exists in, this content, in, the, in the context of idolatry is produced by idolatry. And then not only that is the demand for sacrifice. Gaius and Aristarchus were drawn up into this crowd and they brought them together into the theater. The theater of Ephesus held over 25,000 people. This was a massive crowd that was out of control. And as you read those verses, Paul was even kept from going in by those who cared for his life because they fully expected that Gaius and Aristarchus were going to lose their lives. What do we learn from these verses? We learn what idolatry produces. Fear, rage, confusion, the demand for sacrifice. And what's interesting is what these Ephesians are doing when it says in our text, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, is that most likely they are crying out Artemis, you are the great one of Ephesus, an invocation to their idol, that their idol would save them. In the context of their fear, for hours and hours within the confusion of division, the Ephesians cry out to their goddess. But whenever there is prayer in Acts and it results in silence, you have to understand that there is judgment on that idolatry. What does idolatry produce? That's what we see in these passages. And the last thing is why does idolatry work until it doesn't? Well, we see that in the clerk's response. Now, the clerk would have been the secretary of state. He would have been an, an Ephesian. He would have stood for the Roman government. He would have communicated from Rome to the Ephesians so that they would have understood what they needed to do. As a city-state of Rome, they were free in and of themselves, but Rome was still in control. And so the clerk stood up in verses 35 through 41 and essentially tells us why idolatry works. Listen to how he starts this, con this conversation or this speech. Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? The answer to that question is there's no one that doesn't know that. What does the clerk do? The clerk, because this is the way idolatry works, the clerk offers a false sense of control. What does the clerk point to? The clerk points to what they see in their midst. The great temple of Artemis. And in that temple, the stone, the meteorite most likely that fell from the sky that is worshipped as the gift representing Artemis's presence. Now again, understand the temple of Artemis is one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. One historian said it was so grand that there was nothing that human beings had created that didn't pale in comparison to the temple of Artemis 
in Ephesians. It was amazing. And this clerk says, look at that. See that temple. And don't worry about anything else. Everything is going to be fine. Who can deny, because that temple is there, that Artemis is as great as she is? The clerk offers a false sense of control. In verse 36, he says, look, because this can't be denied, you need to settle down. And the other thing, the other reason that idolatry works is because not only does it offer a false sense of control, but it values order over truth. Now, that's really interesting because the clerk goes on to say, listen, you've brought these guys in who are neither sacrilegious nor have they been blasphemers of our goddess. And if you don't settle down, we are going to be called out by the Roman authorities as rioting and we will be crushed. This clerk valued order over truth. Why does idolatry work? For those two reasons. Idolatry offers a sense of control and values order over truth. Go back to what one of you said to me this week. Isn't it interesting how in these days all of our idols are being exposed? Our idols of control and of wealth, our ideas of health, our idolatry of happiness. Let me ask you a question. I said that why does idolatry work until it doesn't? Do you think that Demetrius, who was dismissed from this gathering, was convinced? The one who on the ground recognized from his own pocket that people were leaving the worship of, uh, worship of Artemis and beginning to worship Jesus, and he was experiencing the loss of wealth. You see, Demetrius knew that idolatry works until it doesn't work anymore. And I think that's where we understand that we turn to the mechanics of Christianity. I want to ask the same three questions briefly. Why does Christianity work? Christianity works. It is true it is the opposite of idolatry. That instead of working on fear, Christianity works on love. The Apostle Paul told us in Romans 5 that God's love has been poured out into our hearts. I love a theologian by the name of John Owen. And I would encourage any of you who want something really difficult to read, to read Communion with God by John Owen because it has affected the way that I think about this. Unlike idolatry that human beings embed into their culture, God's love comes from outside of any human culture into the culture. Just read Philippians 2. The second thing is that it intercedes to remove threats. It doesn't highlight heightened threats, but it intercedes to remove threats. 
And Christianity works off of the premise of God's love. Owen says that God's love is like human love the way we know it in two ways. It results in rest and in complacency. And he means that word in a very positive sense, that God has set his affection on his people, as he says, once fixed forever. The love of God in all of its bounty, unlike idolatry, which reacts to human beings' actions, God's love is antecedent to any human being's reactions. It comes first. And it alone is consistent because it flows from the very character of God. This love in the scripture is defined by Jesus. When John writes, this is love, not that we loved God, read idolatry, but that God loved us and gave his son as the wrath absorber the propitiation of our sins. The opposite of idolatry is God's love for his people, his perfect love that casts out all fear. So what does it produce? What does God's love produce? God's love demonstrated through the gift of Christ. It produces in us love. It replaces rage with joy. Confusion with peace. Human sacrifice with duty. The love that we demonstrate to God flows from his love that he has poured out into us. And it calls us to duty. Listen to what that duty is. That we would rest in him. That we would delight in him. That we would revere him. Mita sent me another article this week that she found somewhere online where a woman talked about the difference that Jesus makes in our relationship with God the Father. That because of Jesus, we don't have to be terrified anymore, but we stand in awe of him. In my house, because I do have some nephews and nieces, it's not always the case that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. Still, nephews and nieces love to ask their preacher, uncle, hey, what does this mean? And my nephew wrote me this week and asked me, he said, what does it mean to fear God? And it is this. It is the difference between terror, being terrified by him and being in awe of him. The recognition of the combination of all power and all beauty in one. And the last duty is obedience. That God's love poured out into our hearts results in obedience. Our obedience to him. This is what Christianity produces. Again, the opposite of idolatry. So why does it work? Why does Christianity work? Because it restores both truth and order. The truth of Christianity is that God is love. That's how he has defined himself. It restores the truth to the lie that has been believed since the garden. 
that God doesn't love us. It's not true. And it also restores order. I, you, we are not God. God is God. And Christianity restores truth and order through Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The quote in the beginning of the order of worship is by Jack Miller, and it says, when you are with God, that is what you are. You are no more and no less. Who are you with God defines the rest of your life. The mechanisms of idolatry are laid out for us in this passage. It is driven by fear and produces fear. And it works as long as there is a false sense of control. But when that is stripped away, there needs to be something else. Praise God for the mechanisms of Christianity that work off of God's love that is antecedent to anything that we have done as human beings and results in love from us because it restores truth and order. What would you even begin to look for for proof of that? Well, let's end with this. Where is the temple of Artemis now? You want to know the only thing that's left of one of the ancient seven wonders of the world? It's a flooded foundation next to the seashore of Ephesus on which they have propped up a single column. And that's all there is to that temple. What about God's temple? Well, the scriptures tell us that the foundation of that temple is the living Jesus Christ who is enthroned in heaven even now and that we are living stones joined together and that God dwells among us and from that temple flows life-giving water so that the world might know that God is God and there is no other. The mechanics of idolatry and the mechanics of Christianity. Let this search your soul this week. Let's pray together.